Welcome to the Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Abend Morgan. Uh, thrilled to be joined today by one Nikki Nellis, blogger, radio host, influencer, extraordinaire, and Washington restaurant industry fangirl number one uh, for the better part of, of two decades. Uh, Nikki is the founder and publisher of The List, uh, the DMV's go-to source for information about local food and wine events, as well as the host of Foodie and the Beast, a weekly food and wine variety show airing on Federal News Radio. She also turns out a companion podcast called Industry Night, while sustaining a vibrant social media following and consulting for various major brands and food and wine festivals. She still finds time for family and travel, having just wrapped up a trip to Sardinia with her beastly husband, David. Thank you for joining us, Nikki. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, for those of you tuning in for the first time, uh, and just to refresh uh, everyone's memory, uh, for those of you uh, listening regularly, uh, we each have a bottle to share with each other. Uh, Nikki commemorated her trip to Sardinia with a bottle of the island's foremost red wine, a robust Cannonau uh, from the Pala family. Uh, I followed suit with one of my favorite traditional Sardinian products, a spirit uh, infused with myrtle berries called Mirto from the Argiolas family. Uh, we'll taste through them both while riffing about life and wine along the way, and then I'll close things out as I want to do with a bit of verse dedicated to our guest and the island that uh, we are equally uh, celebrating today. Uh, Nikki, uh, again, thanks so much for joining us. A few quick questions about uh, your life in food and wine uh, before we dive into these two bottles. Uh, I understand you grew up uh, North Jersey, uh, Jewish family, yes. um, and I feel like food is just a huge kind of intrinsic part of that culture. Uh, it is. It was for us. Um, I grew up uh, in northern Jersey. My father was from the Philadelphia area. My mother was from Scranton, Pennsylvania. They grew up very, very differently. But when they moved to northern New Jersey, they were part of that sort of contingent that went to suburbia outside New York City. So New York City was a real uh, focus for my parents, even though my dad's office was, he was a physician, was down the street. My mother was a professor and the school wasn't far away. We would go to the city a lot. So you're not one of these Jersey families that are never venturing into New York. New no. York is very much a center of your cultural I life. I mean, it would be nothing for my mom to be like, okay, dad's going to come home and we're going into the city for dinner. I mean, we, you know, we went to shows. We went to, we really experienced the city. I mean, I certainly had friends who were like, they never went into New York. But I mean, I live in Kensington, Maryland now. I'm in, like today, I'll be in the city three times today. I'll, I came down earlier, I'm coming down now, I'm coming down tonight for dinner. It's no big deal for me yeah. to utilize the city because that's how I was brought up. Yeah. But, um, you know, I have friends who live where I live, which is only like 20 minutes away. And they Maybe they come to the city once in a while, but it's just, it's not a part of their every day. So the city is, the city and all of its offerings, which obviously encompasses culture and cuisine, is what really turns me on. And I did grow up with a family that, you know, while we were eating breakfast, it was, what are we doing for lunch? Oh, when are cool. we having snacks? Yeah, yeah. What are we doing for dinner? But, you know? it, but it revolved not only around the food itself, but also this idea of dining out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there was a real um, 
I wouldn't say my, my parents and their friends were really into food. It wasn't just dining at the hottest restaurants. Mm -hmm. Like my parents had something called a gourmet club in the 70s and 80s, and they had a bunch of couples. I mean, they went all out with these parties. Yeah. So like they did a, my parents did a meal based on Hawaiian cuisine, Polynesian cuisine. You know, and this isn't when there was um, Amazon and you can just order stuff on online. You know, they had a like, find it. I, I, I see like a Don Ho playlist I mean, and like kitschy tiki drinks and I stuff mean, like but that. See, the thing is, is that you say playlist, like that was something that happened in the 70s and 80s. You know, they're probably just switching in different eight tracks oh, totally. to like make that happen. Do you know what I mean? But they really, you know, found banana leaves and, and found the different ingredients that were necessary to make a Polynesian feast. So I grew up with that, and I will say I had a best friend who loved cooking as much as I did. We both loved food. And, you know, very early on, like when we were 13, we were doing all-out dinner parties for our friends and pulling recipes out of Gourmet Magazine. I mean, we made a crochambeau. We had no idea what we were doing. No, nice. It was really messy, you know, especially with that caramelized sponge sugar. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe we didn't. It's a high burn. degree of difficulty. I, I don't even know how we didn't burn ourselves, like, in multiple ways. But, um, yeah, I just, I've always, I've always loved food. Yeah. I'm an eater. Um, I love entertaining. But um, the hospitality industry has always sort of called to me. Yeah, so it was it was in the water. It was almost yes. deterministic for you yes, exactly. to get into the the food and and wine game. Now, um, what were your folks drinking at home? Was there like a wine culture? So you know, that was not part at of all. The, no? no, my parents were not drinkers at all. I mean, my mom imbibes a little more now. They did not drink cocktails. Uh, my dad really has no taste for alcohol. He will have a glass of, I mean, when we were growing up, I mean, it was like a glass of Chablis, like Inglenook kind of stuff yeah. in our fridge. Um, my mother would have like a Harvey's Bristol cream. Like I can't even, like, I can't even say that word without like kind of tearing oh, up. The, the cream of, cherry. Like, yeah, because yeah. it's so gross. Um, personally, that's a personal opinion. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they did not, we were not, they weren't like educating us on wine yeah. at all. It was all about the food. I think my dad had a negative opinion about alcohol. No, it's totally um, fair. And, and, and even though he'll have a glass of wine now and he enjoys, you know, a really good Chablis or white burgundy um, or a nice uh, California Savion Blanc, he, he just, like, if you said beer to him, he'd be like, oh, who drinks? Like, he has a mental issue, I think, with alcohol. And now my sister, who's a very successful lawyer, mother of four, um, she has never had a glass of alcohol in her life. Yeah, She no. just does not drink. She's never done anything. No drinks, no drugs, no nothing. Oh, wow. I did uh, not live that way. You lived, you lived, I lived a very you, different you, life. Yeah, I made up for that. Different, different <laughs> sister. Um, uh, you know, do you have a particular memory growing up of like a restaurant that you guys went to that was like the special place for oh. a family to celebrate or, you know, a place that just kind of, you know, you had this you know, ongoing, you know, love affair with food, but was there a moment, you know, for the sake of a restaurant experience where things clicked and like, oh, this could be, you know, something else, this could be transcendent? Well, not in, not in my work life. I yeah. knew I wanted to be part of the hospitality industry, but I did not know how I wanted to be part of it. I did think I wanted to be in the kitchen for a very long time. Um, and I know this sounds silly because all you have to do is get in there. I mean, I worked in restaurants, so we well, sprung from, from what I read of it too, you, um, you actually kind of, 
came up with the idea for your blog while you were turning out, you know, baked goods for some local People restaurants. down the streets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that is exactly what happened. I mean, after, um, I mean, I have five children total, but um, three came with my husband, um, but I consider them mine. And, um, and, but when I had my first physical child and I left my career in event planning, um, I started baking for area restaurants. I mean, it was highly illegal. I mean, there was no, um, there was no, uh, you know, what are they called? Incubator kitchens. There was this is like early aughts or? Oh, yeah, early aughts. So, I mean, I was doing it out of my house. Yeah. I mean, the big international gourmet truck would show up in front of my house. Yeah, with, I know, you know that 50, truck. Right, with 50-pound bags of flour and stacks and stacks of butter. And, you know, I just, I loved it. But that's where I actually was taking, because I, I mean, I was guessing on what I was doing. I was lucky to be successful. But um, I started taking classes at Roberto Dona's Laboratorio. Oh, cool. Which were totally random. Um, like, and that was like just south of DuPont, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So he had this fabulous kitchen space. He would do these massive dinners there. But you had to be in the know about these classes. Uh -huh. It was for 10 to 12 people. You cooked. They started serving wine at 8.30 in the morning. I mean, there was a group of us. Very Italian. We were groupies. It was fun. But... You know, they still did ship via snail mail. Like okay. they weren't using. People think like in the two thousands we were all online. We were getting online, but we weren't using it to communicate in a daily way with things. So before blog, so like you called me a blogger and you said my site is a blog. It's not. Oh, I apologize. No, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. no apologies. Yeah. Lots of people wear that title yeah, with yeah. like a lot of. It means a lot to them. I started the website before the blogs existed. Yeah. In fact, two years later, when blogs started popping up, people were like, you should have a blog. And I was like, <laughs> I have a website, which is no different than my radio show, yep. as you've been on. That's a radio show. And people are like, you should have a podcast. I'm like, I have a radio show. Yeah. Like, I, so I do have a podcast, though, and that does turn into a podcast. But I think it's a little bit of sort of the vernacular that people yeah. use. But what happened in that Roberto Donna class was... He would say to me every week, oh, well, you should go see what Michelle Richard is doing because he's going to do a class and uh, or he's going to do this dinner or, you know, Jean-Louis is going to be doing this or like he would tell us about these dinners and these classes and these events that were happening around town. And if it wasn't in Washingtonian, which it wasn't because they weren't doing they weren't daily yet. They were yeah. just replicating what was in the magazine on their website. Yeah. And it wasn't in the Washington Post, which it wasn't. I was like, how do people find out about it. And that's really how the list came together. Uh -huh. I wanted a one-stop shop for every food and wine event in the DC metro area. And that's what it's been ever since. And that's what it does. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, were there, so, you know, cooking was the, the initial hook, um, was wine, you know, and, you know, wine industry events, you know, always an important part of that? Yes. I mean, I really love, I'm a wine drinker. Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge spirit drinker. I yeah. mean, People pour me cocktails all the time. I am delighted to have a taste of them. I have a palate for them. I understand them. I love a well-balanced drink, but I'm not one to drink it. I, I like wine. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not a beer drinker, much to Greg Ankert's uh, chagrin. Um, and he has poured me a lot of beer over the years. Not that there isn't beer that, that has a good taste to me. It's just not what I want to be drinking. It's texture. It's heft. There's something in wine and the complexity of wine. If you need wine. an alcohol delivery mechanism, it's not going to be beer or cocktails. It is not, it's right. Be, yeah. It's going to be wine and yeah. champagne, which is wine. But yeah, like the, for you, that would be like the most important, you know, subgenre of, yes. of wine. Understood. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, under, understood. Um, so uh, what did you bring us today uh, for the sake of um, a bottle 
that uh, lays before us. Uh, I understand you just kind of got back from Sardinia and you know you wanted to you know, kind of pay homage to that trip. Without a doubt. So I was not familiar with the Cannonau grape at all when uh, we went to Sardinia. I knew about Vermentina, and I'm a big fan of uh, that white wine. I did not know a lot about Sardinian wines. And um, we ate in some of the most amazing rest. I mean, it's Italy. You're really hard-pressed to find a bad meal, um, and especially in Sardinia because it's so much fresh fish, and then the center of the island has lots of wild pigs, chingales. So, you know, you really have this large breadth and depth of amazing cuisine. They really um, are seasonally based, but they also choose from their island. So, you know, they're not flying stuff in. Like, everything is really from the island. And I really felt when David and I were there, that it would be important to stay to the island. Mm -hmm. So we only drank Sardinian no, wine. Cool. And, um, you know, in the summer when it's hot, I really tend to go more white and rosé, and there were some lovely sparklings and some, actually, a couple very good rosés. But um, I was really impressed by the Cannonau grape. Um, we went to a fabulous winery. I could not bring their wine back with me. Uh, but we went to Giancara, okay. uh, which is up in the north, and really got a walk through the wines and the vines and the history of the wine in, especially northern Sardinia. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we were just really impressed by it. Um, is that something you do regularly when you travel? Is it something? Well, so my husband, as you know, speaks Italian. Okay. So if we're traveling and we go to Italy, yeah. yes. I mean, we incorporate, obviously we're incorporating white incorporating wine to it. So, but now this summer I was in Israel, mm. um, and that was a media trip. Um, and there was a wine component to it, okay. but not nearly like what we invested in our Sardinian trip, yeah. because that was more food and culture. Uh, it was more culture and cuisine and sort of professional growth yeah. sort of space, uh, but the wines were there. Um, but we didn't have like an Eric Siegelbaum, for example, who is, I know is an ambassador for some wines out of Israel. We didn't have his take or yeah. history on that. It wasn't as important, but we made an effort on this trip to Sardinia to incorporate that. Well, I don't think you needed Siegelbaum's take. I mean, you had a native Italian speaker and No, 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 I mean in Israel. So. Yeah, I yeah, mean yeah. in Israel, yeah, yeah. you know, but um, no, I mean, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. I, I like the educational process and you know, you're a way more obvious expert on wine. I just know what I, I know what I like, and I know that I can talk about it. Yeah. Do you find that you know? T I've I've found in touring vineyards sometimes, and I do this, you know, or have done this with my wife who isn't in the restaurant game. Uh, the thing we particularly love about it, uh, not being Italian speakers, but you know, speaking the kind of international language of wine to some extent, is that. It gives you the shared currency uh, that you wouldn't have with people otherwise, and especially in places like Italy, where you know people will just open their their homes, their lives to you um, at the at the drop of a hat. You know, we found that some of our most profound, some of our most intimate experiences uh, traveling have been the ones that have revolved around um, our appreciation of wine. Well, actually, it's really funny you mentioned that. So at the place we stayed at, the hotel that we stayed at up north uh, outside San Pantaleo, um, we became very friendly with our concierge, who was just this lovely man named Franco. He really like helped me hone down all the things that I thought we wanted to do. And he had a, an excellent eye and was able to curate for us a really wonderful trip. And we had such a lovely time with him that when we were driving down to go south, 
he gave us directions to drive through the town he grew up in and then suggested we go in and have a drink with his mother. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it was such a like heartwarming moment. Yeah. And David and I, I was like, I mean, who in the United States would ever oh, say, yeah. oh, you're driving from D.C. to New York? Stop in Philly. Go have coffee yeah. with my sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's never well, okay. happening. So, so lay, the, lay the scene for us. You know, what are we drinking with Nona? What is this, what is this village like? Um, <laughs> so we did not, she was not available, believe uh, it or not. So uh, we no. did not get to meet to her, with her, but we did stop in his town. Okay. And we went to these cliffs above the town and had lunch overlooking the ocean. And in Sardinia... All these like beachside restaurants don't look that special. I mean, they don't look bad. They don't look yeah. like shacks, but they don't look like there's anything going on there. And then you walk in and it's all china and crystal and silverware and, you know, four course meals. It's just, they live very differently over there. Yeah. They live pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I always have a sense traveling in, in Southern Italy in particular of, time slowing down mm -hmm. and, and people, you know, just kind of wanting to, you know, appreciate simple things in, in a different way. And, and sometimes I have trouble with it. You know, initially, like, I'll get over there and I'll want a coffee and I'll want a coffee fast and, you know, you know, I want to drink my coffee fast and then move on with the rest of my day. And, and that's not always the rhythm of life yeah. over there. And I kind of have to, you know, I need like a couple of days to adjust. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I will say that what I do love more in the cities of Italy is the snack bar, right? So you go yeah. up to the bar, you, you throw back that espresso yeah, yeah, yeah. and you call it a day. You know, what's fascinating when you go to Europe is there's not a lot of people walking around with cups in their hand. Like there is here in the United States. Like there is an appreciation. There is a pleasure to the consumption of coffee. There is a pleasure to the consumption of wine or your aperitivo yeah, and yeah, food yeah. that I think, I don't know what it is about the culture in the United States. We enjoy food, but there's a lot of people who are eating just because they're eating. Like yeah. I don't, I personally, I don't eat that way. Like I'm never like, oh, I'm really hungry. I'm just going to grab something. Yeah. I'm very intentional about what I eat and how I eat because I want it to be Good. I love the pleasure of eating yeah, and yeah. drinking. Well, I think there, you know, it's, it's wrapped up in the culture. You know, there are all sorts of signifiers that um, are important to, you know, what it means to be from that particular place. And, mm -hmm. you know, the mere fact of where you have your coffee in the morning or, you know, what you get to eat alongside it, you know, says something about who you are in a really profound way that it doesn't always stateside. Um, and, you know, I, I always appreciate that about places like Sardinia. Um, mm -hmm. How did you land there in the first place? So, as I mentioned, my husband lived in Italy with the first Mrs. Nellis. Okay. I'm number three. Uh, we've been married, though, for like 26 years. Um, but they lived Was there. the first Mrs. Nellis Italian? No. Oh, fascinating. Actually, though, can I just segue for a second? Yeah. So, first Mrs. Nellis uh, was not Jewish, was not Italian, was adopted did convert to Judaism, and then after her adoptive parents died, she did a genealogy, like yeah, Ancestry.com kind of thing. Not only are her roots like 100% Jewish, wow. but she was also she also was Italian. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's wild. I know I love uh, stuff is, like that. Is David's family Jewish as well? Yeah. My okay. husband's family is Jewish, yeah. um, not Italian, although he would really like he to He could be. pass, though. He could pass. Yeah. But, um, and his, um, you know, he really 
gets in well. What I found interesting for me in Italy is that I do not speak the language. Yeah. And there was a time in my life where I could mimic accents. Yeah. You know, or at least I could say the words correctly. But now I, I have no ability. But I can, I understand. I, le- I feel like I, I get like 60% of what's going on. Yeah. So I feel a part of it. But um, anyway, so we go to Italy because he loves it. Yeah. And that's... Well, it gives him a chance to, you know, show off his... Show off, uh, yeah. exactly. But it is, it is very life-changing when somebody speaks the language. Oh, totally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're able to communicate. Um, there's an appreciation on the other end. Um, I, I don't know. We, I just love it there. I mean, it's not that I don't love going other places. Yeah. Because I do. But it's really hard when you don't speak the language. Well, no, absolutely. And I think the fun thing about Italy, there's so many Italys within Italy, mm-hmm. you know? So... Um, you know, the north is hugely different from the south. Uh, Sardinia is one of five um, autonomous communes with, within, within Italy. Um, and, you know, it has a very distinct, you know, cultural and political history uh, compared, to the, compared to the rest of the country. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And it shows yeah. in the culture. I mean, listen, the north is where a lot of people, celebrities, a lot of very wealthy people. It's like people, yacht country. It's like, oh, so Porto Cervo, I've, I've never seen anything like that oh, cool. in my entire life like just the money like Riviera level yes Riviera level yeah. so I've never been to the Riviera but I was like oh my god like it's just it's now, unbelievable does that tr- I'm, I always wonder about that though does that translate for the sake of your beach side joints are they catering to the people on the yachts or are the people on the yachts just staying on the yachts well I think it's a bit of both okay. so I mean you know like so our little San Pantaleo this little town hill town was about a 20 minute ride from the beach yeah. beaches bunches of beaches and you know if you looked at the town you'd be like oh it's cute but you wouldn't think anything about the town and then you walk around all the stores are fabulous now they don't look fabulous from the yeah. outside but you go inside and you're like oh i have i have misjudged everything every restaurant was like a high level restaurant not that it was fine dining but these people were laying out good food and one of the restaurants we went to i mean it looked like a nice we had heard it was good and we had reservations there and we went in and we had 10 o'clock reservations or actually we had 9 30 reservations and we walked in that's early right when we walked in there was like nobody there and then by like 11 you know the place is packed and i mean i felt like it was the people coming in from the yachts but they were all italians yeah we were there were no americans there it was all I, always, I always find that hugely validating when I pick that kind of place on, on vacation, okay. you know? Yes. If we're the only, you know, people that look and sound like us in a place, I get irrationally excited about it. Uh, well, <laughs> because I think you and I are similar in that I don't like to be a tourist anywhere. Yeah. I want yeah. to fit, I want to feel like I fit in or that I could fit in. Yeah. So I want to adjust immediately. I like to know my surroundings. I like to know what the deal is. And then I want to just immerse myself in it. Yeah. Um, now, you were in the north. That's mostly like Vermentino country. Um, uh, was, we had Cannonale. You had Cannonale as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what appealed to you about, you know, this not being familiar with this wine before, what appealed to you about it? Well, I thought it was a very complex wine. Mm-hmm. And there was also so many styles of it. So, like, the first one that was poured for us, it was our first night there, was um, bold and uh, heavy on the tongue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it complemented the meal that we were having, but um, I was like, Plus, I had not been, it was summer. I had not been drinking a lot of red wine during the summer. So it was, it knocked me back. Yeah. 
Um, but then as we went through the meals where we were having, you know, red wine predominantly at dinner, um, because we were, as I said, we were drinking a lot of sparkling and some really good rosés mm -hmm. um, during the day. Um, but uh, it just really fit, and it felt good with the weather, and it felt good with the food. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? It just complemented. I'm not a um, a wine tasting, what's it called, a wine paired person. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't love wine pairings with yeah. my meals. I just want to drink the wine I like. Yeah, yeah. No, there's still, there are like different schools of thought when it comes to that, and mm -hmm. I think. You know, it is important to stay in your lane if you know what you like. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think, like, the wine, you know, cognizant, the thing they would say about that is just trying to find wines that are sufficiently versatile that can go with a lot of different things. And, mm -hmm. and not every style of Cannonau is like that. Right. So, like, this one that I brought, this is really light. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah, it's, this, this is a versatile red wine. And yeah. it's actually a little juicier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Than the wines I was drinking. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's not very totally. dry. Yeah. So this is, uh, you brought a wine from the Pala family. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they're, they're in the south. So they're much um, uh, closely to uh, Cal uh, Calgary. Uh, uh, Cagliari. Uh, Cagliari. Cagliari. Mm -hmm. Cagliari. I know, it's hard to say because of that G. Oh, uh, yeah, yes. yeah. I know. And I am, I am not uh, fluent in mm -hmm. Italian, sadly. But um, so this is from, uh, these, both of these wineries that uh, uh, we are featuring today are actually uh, just north. Of, mm -hmm. of the southern coast. And um, that is kind of Carignan country, but also Cannonau country. Uh, Cannonau is an interesting grape. It is genetically um, almost identical uh, part of the family of Grenache. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's reflective of Sardinian history because it's thought that Grenache uh, was originally an Aragonese grape. And uh, the kingdom of Aragon, um, beginning in the, the 14th century, or beginning in the 1400s, rather, uh, presided over Sardinia. Now, here's where the story gets kind of more complicated, because the Sardinians are fiercely proud of Cannonau as mm -hmm. their quote-unquote native grape, and they insist that it is uh, different from the, the Garnacha that exists in, in Spain. And uh, there's been quite a bit of scientific work uh, to kind of uh, tease out its, its actual origins, and, and recently they found um, just like thousand-year-old pips of uh, Cannonau in this uh, Nuragi. Uh, so the Nuragis are the these. The Nuragis like, are these rock structures. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. all over Sardinia. Yeah, exactly. They're pretty cool. Yeah, and, and they date to the Stone Age. So right. uh, they essentially found Stone Age Cannonau pips. And uh, for all of these, you know, winemakers in Sardinia, they see it as this huge vindication of their claim for Cannonau as a Sardinian specialty as opposed to this like, you know, kind of pan-Mediterranean specialty. That, yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And um, uh, it, it is, it does have a different character, you know, than um, the Grenache you find in the southern Mediterranean in France and the Garnacha that you find in Spain. Uh, and, and to speak to your point, you know, typically it's not quite, you know, as juicy. It is a little more herbal. You know, it is a little more... Um, you know, woodsy. Um, woodsy is a great word for it. Like, I'm not disappointed in this wine, but it's not, like, the flavor and taste I was looking for, or the texture, quite frankly. But when you say Grenache, to me, this speaks to me in Grenache. Yeah, yeah, Right? Yeah. It feels very Grenache. -y. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, uh, Grenache is, is famously, like, um, juicy and, and pleasantly fruity uh, as a grape. It's a very late ripener, so it needs, you know... Um, ideal, you know, kind of hot, dry southern Mediterranean sun to properly mm -hmm. ripen. But once it does, it has relatively thin skins, and it just brings this, like, fresh, fruity, 
buoyancy to the party. Uh, mm. Canon Out, you know, to my mind, does something different. Um, I do. Uh, this is. I always love uh, visiting wine websites because usually you get some kind of like overwrought prose right. uh, for the sake of the <laughs> wine at hand. And um, uh, they talk about this one like a walk in the woods. Uh, um, uh, a berry of strawberry t uh, tree and sudden gust of wind full of salt from the sea. Uh, they talk about the sense of myrtle, um, mm. which we'll get to. Well, uh, so myrtle is all over the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everywhere. And it's, it's kind of cool. Myrtle is uh, actually a wild bush. Um, it's, it's difficult to cultivate, uh, and it thrives in the shadow of olive trees, um, among, among other things. Which um, are also everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this, this is the, this is so... Um, this cuvee is called uh, Centosere, and this is just an amazing bit of uh, wine page prose. Uh, Centosere is a gentleman, a gentleman in an evening dress who accompanies you around the world, capable of sharing an important and elegant evening with you and others. Centosere is a gentleman who, proud, at a table overlooking the Eiffel Tower of Paris or Central Park, he answers firmly yes when asked, are you Sardinian? Uh, that so, is so great. <laughs> yeah, so great, great moments in overwrought um, wine prose. Thanks to the folks at Chinchester. Um I, I think there's an elegance about this wine that I, that I do take. Um, I, I do. Yeah. I, it wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah. Um, but it's a reasonably priced wine. Totally. And um, and you know I don't think there's a listen Sicilian wines, which red Sicilians Mount Etnas are my total go tos. I, I just totally dig that ashy, lovely flavor mm -hmm. that you get out of those. Um, and they are more popular now, and you will see them in more stores. But, like, I went to two stores, and I'm like, do you have any Sardinian? They would always take me to Sicilian. I was like, no, 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 not Sicily. Sardinia. So it's, listen, there's so many wines on the market, so I totally understand that, you know, it's not everywhere. But, um, you know, I think as more, as more and more regions get more and more popular, then their wines and food become more popular. Totally. And, I mean, to give you kind of a... a a comparison for the sake of Sicily and Sardinia. They're actually comparably sized islands. Um, uh, uh, Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean. Sardinia is the second largest island in the Mediterranean, but um, not by all that much. What I find fascinating is that uh, Sardinia uh, has about a third of Sicily's population mm -hmm. and significantly less uh, uh, area under vine. So there's a sense for a lot of Sardinian wine makers and producers of this untapped potential uh, there. and and. Well but and I think that's really interesting. But also, you know, like the island, in effect, closes down as of October 15th. Oh, wow. So you can't get a reservation at a hotel because the hotel is closed from like October 15th to March 15th. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's a very um, seasonally based, tourist-driven yeah. area. Well, it's funny, too. I was, I was reading up for this, this pod, and uh, D.H. Lawrence has this famous um, travel log. He was living in Sicily, but he traveled to Sardinia and wrote this famous travel log in the 30s. And he talks about Sardinia as this land outside of time and history. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my image of Sardinia is like, the, it's more the uplands. It's less the yachts. It's more of this like, you know, sheep outnumber people um, in, in Sardinia. It's more of like a herder. You know, it's like, uh, you know, eating the like iconic um, Sardinian flatbread and like noshing on pecorino. I feel oh like that's, God. yeah. Uh, that uh, the Sardinian flatbread, which is pan can uh, casal, I think is how it's pronounced, is um, we Americans call it Sardinian flatbread. They do not call it Sardinian flatbread. So if you ask for it, they look at you like, yeah, yeah. What you're talking about. But um, they probably is, just call it bread. Uh, no, it's called pane, which Car is bread. Carousel. Carousel. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's it. Um, but I mean, that's like my kryptonite. Yeah. I just <laughs> was like, I'll just eat 
all of that. It's on every table. It is delicious. And I think what's really interesting is the use of space and understanding what people see in Sardinia. So every place we ate had a view of something. There's a real appreciation for what's around you. So whether it was in the that little town and we ate around the piazza, but you're still looking up at the mountains, or um, you're down by the water, every table has an ocean view, yeah. or like at our hotel, which has a Michelin restaurant, um, every table looks out on the vista. And I just, there's such an appreciation for that. It, I'm not saying that Americans don't have that appreciation, but it's not the first thing people think of yeah. when they're thinking about hospitality. I think we're seeing more of it actually in DC with all the rooftops, because you know, 15 years ago, there was one rooftop. What, the W? Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Before that, it was the Hotel Washington, yeah. and now it is yeah. the Hotel Washington again. Uh, but there were no rooftops in this city. And even down by the water, other than the Georgetown Harbor, we had all this gorgeous water space that was completely not used. The, wa the Watergate has kind of a fun rooftop. Uh, it does now. Oh, okay. It didn't before. No, that's totally uh, it's a great. It's a great, like, uh, watch planes come in oh, down the Potomac. Oh, it's amazing. And the people watching there is fire. Equally. Yeah. But yeah. that is maybe six or seven years old. Oh, wow. Old. I didn't oh, realize yeah. that. That's not, like, a part of the old Watergate Hotel. Yeah. That is all new. And now I think you're finding structures, even the Line Hotel, every, almost every new hotel, lots of apartment buildings, everything that's opening up in the city is, like, we want to take advantage of the views that we can see because unlike a New York or a Philadelphia or a Boston or an LA, DC's buildings can only go so high. Yeah. So you're not blocking anybody. Yeah. So you really have an excellent opportunity to see some great sites. Yeah. That's a, that's a fascinating takeaway. Uh, for the sake of your Sardinian tour, do you have any other, you know, bringing vacation with you kind of takeaways for the sake of... Uh, for Sardinia? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, we're definitely going back. Uh -huh. So we really love the North. The North obviously spoke to us. Yeah. The, the food, the people, the beaches. Uh, we liked that kind of day. So every day we got up, we went into the little town, we had our coffee and bamboloni, and then we would go to a different beach and hang out at that beach for the day, eat at that beach for the day. I love to hike. There was great hiking there, like oh, amazing cool. hiking. And uh, we went to a, one or two wineries. I mean... It, it's not my husband's focus, it's my focus, and yeah. we were drinking plenty of wine. So um, so I love that, and then visiting other towns and sort of exploring. But when we went down south, um, our resort was on the beach, and it was fabulous, it was gorgeous, um, and the beaches were beautiful, but the concierge was kind of like, we don't understand why you want to go to other beaches. Like, oh, yeah. They were like... There's no reason. And she wasn't wrong. And the little towns down there were just not as charming. She's like, you're not going to like it. I was like, I might like it. She was like, okay. And then I went. And I'd be like, yeah, she's right. I mean, there's <laughs> obviously she knew. There was nothing there. So there were other restaurants to go to, but they really kind of want you to stay on property. Yeah. And like we went into Cagliari and we schmied around all day. But... There's really not a lot there. And I will tell you, also, you have to remember in Italy, and especially in Sardinia, like, from one to four, they're close. Oh, Siesta's a thing. Yeah, Siesta, Siesta is, is real. It, yeah, yeah, it is. So, uh, I can remember traveling around Sicily and forget where we were driving, but it was like, you know, 2.30, like, like dead. And, and we were just, you know, in rural Sicily and drove through a town. And, and, and I think we, we needed help. I think we had a GPS, but we needed help with directions, strangely. But... Uh, 
it was like a zombie right. uh, ghost town. It You're was like, where is it was it was crazy. Yeah. Everything yeah. shut down. And so here it is at the height of tourist season. And they're like, yeah, we'll see you at four o'clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, yeah, no. There, there is this like uncompromising, you know, quality to you know lifestyle there. That, yes, that, I agree. That's um, uh, that's appealing. But I do. Um, so Stanley Tucci just did a trip to Sardinia. Oh, cool. Yeah, but his trip is very, very food focused, mm -hmm. which I appreciate. But it's hard to stay well in some of the places he went to because it's not where people stay. Yeah. So if you were to listen just to him, you're not gonna be, you're not gonna get the trip that you want because his trip is really about the food, mm -hmm. which I appreciate. But when you go to Sardinia, you're going for way more than just the food. Yeah. Um, you have been recording a podcast with, or sorry, not podcast, uh, the, uh, radio the, radio, the, the, the radio show. Um, it's, it's fascinating though, because uh, you know, it, it performs you know, both your website and the, uh, the radio show perform a lot of the same functions that, you know, people ultimately filled for the sake of, mm -hmm. you know, podcasts and podcasts and blogs. But like you said, you were, you know, ahead of the curve for right. this, for the sake of, you know, utilizing both those mediums in, you know, sort of, um, different ways, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, we're about, you know, community building, uh, essentially, which is, which is what social media is all about. Right. But, um, you know, uh, it, it kind of, you know, taken a turn for the sake of, you know, self-publishing and, you know, you still have this kind of layer of, you know, sophistication that's sometimes missing from, you know, the self-published outlets. Well, I appreciate that. That's a very lovely thing to say. I think for me, I never really want to interject my opinion into what's happening in whether I'm traveling or, you know, my, my travel writing, my DC coverage, all that kind of stuff. I always say I tell, I don't sell. Because it's really important to me that people know what's happening more than anything else. And then you can decide for yourself. I mean, critics are great. I mean, you know, and it's important sometimes to understand the nuance through somebody else's eyes. But to me, I'd rather just tell you that this new restaurant has opened. Yeah. And you can go and find out whether or not you like it. Yeah. You don't need me to tell you. Because our tastes could be incredibly different. I, I think it's, I mean, having dined out with Tom Sietzema before, you know, I read his review after we dined out together. And I was like, huh, I did not feel that way oh, at so, all. For the, so. for the uninitiated, Tom Sietzema is the critic of record at yes, uh, the Washington, Washington Post. Post. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and obviously I have other friends who are in the food critic world yeah. um, and judges of various things. And, you know, we don't always agree because that's what makes the world go around. You know, our palates are different and uh, they're educated differently. And some people need help getting their taste to grow. And some people are just, that's a hard no, like super tasters, you know, can only take so much of certain yeah, flavors. Yeah, and actually, um, super t a lot of super tasters, um, uh, super tasters are genetically more likely to be women. And a lot of super tasters hate alcohol yep. for that reason, uh, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Well, there's a, you know, I think for a long time, the word super tasters made people think that they were like actually super Like they tasters. had like a Marvel thing. Like they had like yeah. this incredible palate. Yeah. That is not what it is. No, it's actually, and actually you can test yourself. It's really interesting. Um, so it has everything to do with the concentration of taste buds mm -hmm. um, on your tongue. And you can do like a really simple home test. Uh, it's to, like strips, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and you're essentially just measuring the concentration of taste buds on your, on your tongue. And um, uh, a lot of people might assume that like chefs and, you know, 
wine nerds and stuff like that are super tasty, but typically not. Typically, chefs and sommeliers are like right in the middle of bell curve, because um, you know that's where you kind of want to be for mm -hmm. you know full appreciation of food across the spectrum. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, but I've always I've always found that really fascinating. Um, how did the radio show evolve out of the list ultimately? So what happened was uh, Michelle Richard was on Diary of a Foodie, which was a, a documentary style show on PBS yeah. in the aughts. And he asked me to be on with him. Oh, cool. Which was obviously very exciting and really cool. And so and the whole show was about Trump Lloyd. Mm -hmm. which he was the master of. Yeah. And now David Deshays, his acolyte, um, is now e executing some of that very, very well. Um, and uh, he said to me, there's no food radio in this city. Why isn't there any food radio? And I'm not going to mimic his accent because I would never do that to him. But, you know, it did not sound like how I'm saying it. Yeah, yeah. And um, it uh, was just... It, what, was it, was it uh, more, you know, uh, haughty or was it just more profane? Uh, not profane, but you know, he, he was such a character. I mean, I loved him very much. I, you know, if he were around today, I think he would be in trouble for well, it's, his... just, it's a different, it's a different generation yes. of, of chefs. And it was like an iconic generation, you know, for the sake of Roberto Donna, for the sake of Michel Richard, right. for the sake of, you know, just before them, Jean-Louis Paladin, you know, it is very much like a... Well, they were all immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. They were all from Europe. They all trained in kitchens. It's so differently. You know, there, it talk about a cultural shift. And, you know, I, I think, not to jump ahead to something totally different, but all the changes that are happening in kitchens today are outgrowing what, what they brought here because people don't want to work that way anymore. But they came from that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And you could do a six degrees of separation with Michel or Jean-Louis or Roberto, like everybody worked under them who was the next wave of chefs in this city. Like they all started in one of their kitchens. Yeah. Um, and like I love following that sort of Venn diagram. It's like a coaching tree in yes. sports, but yeah, with, with exactly. chefs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but anyway, he brought me to that and then it just so happened. I was already doing WTOP. Um, I freelance for WTOP Radio. Oh, it's cool. a, a local news radio station here in the D.C. market. And um, they had this other station. And they sort of said to me, um, we're looking for content. Now, back then, it was still a Washington Post radio. It changed. You know, these stations changed over all yeah. the time. So it changed over to a federal news in between us being there. So originally, I wanted to do it with one of my food friends. I really wanted to bring in some of the people that I do food with and like have a food chat and my husband really talked me out of it and he was like I think that's boring I was like of course you think it's boring you don't like to talk about food but he really thought it would be fun to have sort of the everyman the lay person at the table who doesn't understand the business who doesn't understand you know tweezer food who doesn't you know get it to sort of bring that uh, perspective to the table. So he elbowed his way into oh your, God, totally, to your show. Totally rode my coattails. <laughs> completely and totally on that one. But it worked out great. Yeah. And we've been doing that show for 14 years. And um, I mean, we've had everybody from like Thomas Keller and Wolfgang Puck and Jean-Georges von Richten, winemakers from around the world, um, beer makers. Um, uh, we've had everybody. But even more so, I love our uh, food politic talks that we get to have with people given no, that cool. we live in D.C. Yeah. Um, you know, and really talking to like 
the makers, you know, some woman who's making jam around the corner. Mm -hmm. So the breadth and depth of the things we get to talk about are really terrific. I think it's fun to get a sense, too, of the way your guests interact. It has, this, you know, it's people from these very disparate worlds mm -hmm. in, you know, the food industry that don't always come together for the sake of, yeah, like you said, a jam maker for the sake of, you know, somebody working on a different line of products for a supermarket for the sake of somebody, you know, knee deep in the restaurant world for the sake of a winemaker. And uh, it has a bit of this like Star Wars bar feel to it. I love that. Well, I said when you were on, like you guys stayed for like 40 minutes, like we yeah. couldn't get you out of the studio, which I don't, I love that. Yeah. I love that people are sitting around talking, learning, networking. I know how much business has happened after the show. I know that people take each other's cards, somebody pops up somewhere, somebody buys somebody's product, somebody, like, so many things happen. And I mean, that was an unintended fabulousness of the show, yeah. but I love when that happens. And I will be honest, when I book the show, I think that way. Yeah. It doesn't always work, but I think, okay, will this person get something out of this? Because if something could happen, why shouldn't it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, how has it show evolved over, I mean, it's a lot of episodes, uh, 14, 14 years worth of content. Um, you know, has, has David softened around the edges? Is he less beast than he once was? Uh, uh, have you, you know, come to, you know, not appreciate his perspective, but, you know, um, work with him in a different way than you did when you all started? Um, do I appreciate his perspective? No, I don't, because I think he should know more at this point. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes he says but his, things. But his whole shtick is like, you know, you know the, uh, yes. the babe in the woods, like the, yeah, the, the ignorant. Yes, but, it should, but I believe in authenticity on the show. Yeah. So, but he's not screwing around. Yeah. You know, I just think, I, I think I said this to you before, and I, I, I say this a lot. There is a huge disconnect between the diner and the hospitality industry. Now the diner, the lover, the foodie, you know, like even my husband is a good example. Here is somebody who knows the industry, he eats out, we go out, we know a lot of people in the industry. He knows there's staff shortages. He knows what the problems are. But when he goes into a restaurant, he's like, I mean, where the hell's my drink? And I think you see this time and time and time again, this like disconnect. Because at the end of the day, what he doesn't understand is how the business works. And I think that the restaurant industry thinks that these lovers of food understand the business. And I think they think they understand the business, but they don't. They have no idea how the business works. They don't get it. If you can't surmount that for the sake of someone doing an industry podcast for 14 years, how, how can you surmount that for the sake of right. you know, casual diners? Right. That's my point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, I, listen, I... As you have said, I am an advocate, I am a lover, I have worked in the industry, I've been a part of it now for 20 years. Um, but I think one of the things the pandemic has brought up was that I think there was this relationship that, that people thought was there, and it, it isn't. They don't know, they don't know how it works. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's with the, the new initiative that's probably gonna pass tomorrow, I mean, it's gonna be a problem. Um, you know, I, I come at it from a, a slightly different perspective. I, I do think that, you know, there were a lot of challenges that came with pandemic. Uh, the initiative you're referring to is Initiative uh, 82 yes. on the ballot in D.C. that would do away with the tip minimum wage. Um, and, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I own a restaurant and two restaurants that have done away with the tip minimum wage. So I have, you know, uh, a clear but perspective. But you guys are doing it really right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are good, good and bad ways to go about it. I think, you know, the thing that, you know, pandemic has changed a little bit is this notion of the customer always being right, uh, I think, has um, been, you know, appropriately blown up. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's clear that there are, there are things that people in the hospitality industry should not have to endure, you know, for, for the sake of delivering, you know, quote, unquote, good service. And, and I think that is a long overdue shift in, in our industry. And you can argue certainly about process, but um, making sure that people are paid better wages across front and back of the house and then people are getting real benefits for the sake of uh, the work they do in the hospitality sector and, and for the sake of creating you know, a more professional and, and livable industry. Those are long you know, overdue challenges that were not being taken sufficiently seriously. And the thing that pandemic did was it, it forced people to confront those uh, issues. And, and coming back from it, I, th I think it's forced people to, you know, think differently about the restaurant world they, they want to, you know, rebuild and, and perpetuate for the sake of the people doing the guest-facing work. Well, I agree with you. And I think when the pandemic, when we were in the the real throes of it. There was so much talk about this is the opportunity to rework the industry. And But listen, people like you and Jill and other people who saw that, this moment as a way to fix it for themselves, which is amazing, right, for your business model is terrific. But so many others were just so mired in the muck of what was happening that they didn't pull back or they couldn't. I mean, I'm not judging them on it. Yeah. but. I see what you did, and I think it makes so much sense. It's reasonable, people understand it, it's easy to explain, but you know, I think for the larger, bigger picture, other people just can't figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, part of me, I, I do share, I have a little bit of frustration with that, because it doesn't feel like rocket science, you know? Right. Uh, you know, the people should get paid an equitable wage, and they shouldn't derive you know, the bulk of their income from the whim of of a diner. Yeah, exactly. For the sake of for, for the sake of gratuity, and that does that doesn't feel like rocket science. I think there's a lot baked into the behavioral economics of of all that. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other thing that I don't think a lot of diners realize is that the tips that they're leaving cannot legally be distributed across the entire hourly wage pool. So legally that money can only go to... To the server. Exactly, exactly. And, and that means that uh, your back-of-the-house employees are underpaid uh, mm -hmm. relative to the front-of-the-house, and that divide is almost insurmountable right. in, in a tipped wage system. And I, I think that it's beyond time for our industry to, to address that. I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's this really interesting moment, like you said, because... We are not out of the woods, such as, mm -hmm. such as it is. You know, so much of what we do as you know, industry professionals and, and business owners has irrevocably changed or is still stressed for the sake of things costing more and, and labor being in, in short supply. And do I think people's attitudes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So like, to me, if you want to talk about something you can take away from the restaurant industry, stop giving people free shit. Yeah. Like, I... People's, because now people expect it. And I find that so unattractive. You know, well, well, we had a seven o'clock reservation and we didn't sit down to 7.30 and they didn't even give us a free drink. And I'm like, why do they, why, 
if I go to the doctor's office and I wait an hour for my appointment, I don't get a free shot of Botox. You, you don't get like, a free filling. I have to wait. <laughs> do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's what happens. So, yeah, totally. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think there are things that the hospitality industry is going to have to Absolutely. redo with their clientele in order for it to be better for everyone. Well, it's, it's almost like we're stuck in this abusive relationship right. and we're trying to redefine the terms of it. It's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, you were talking about this earlier generation of DC, DC chefs and, right. you know, we both have been in the game long enough to know enough stories about that, you know, that generation that, you know, we can't, <laughs> you know, tell, tell on air. I, I, this is a place where I always think like, the podcast outside a podcast would be more interesting right? when you know, you're you're, like off, the, you're off the record. But men behaving badly, yeah, just yeah, behaving yeah, badly. Yeah, totally, sure. totally. But like that that was a thing, and and that has uh, irrevocably and seismically shifted in a relatively short period of time for the mm -hmm. for the better in a really amazing way. But it's something the industry is is coming to terms with, um, and uh, it, it's been fascinating to see that change. Honestly, so quickly during the during the course of my career, right. um, and you know, I've, I've been in the game for about as long as you've been doing your podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the thing that excites me though is is that I think there was when I was entering this game, it felt like there was kind of one way to do this in the sense of you're either all in, this is your fucking life, mm -hmm. you know, you are devoted entirely to the whims of these people coming through your doors. You will, you know lay out the red carpet and they will have this you know, transformational experience of your restaurant or you can fuck off. Right. And that has changed. And, and I think it was really important for that to change for the sake of bringing in these voices that felt shut out of that equation. Right. You, you know, that, that is not a recipe for diversity and inclusivity. And that's, that's not a recipe just for an interesting restaurant, you know, world, you know, that's, that's a recipe for a lot of people that look like, you know, Roberta and Jean-Louis, right. you know, and, and, and Michelle and, and, uh, that has thankfully changed. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are other things that have come with that, that I, you know, would, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's interesting. I just, it feels like everything's still kind of, you know, yeah, it's in all flux. up in the air. Yeah. It yeah. is all up in the air, but the shift is happening. Yeah. Like, I always talk about pendulum swings. Um, you know, you saw it with bloggers, right? So pendulum swing with the bloggers. When I started in the industry, there was no such thing as a blogger. You know, five years later, there were a hundred bloggers. You know, I'd go to an event, there'd be a hundred people all of a sudden covering food, and now there's like six bloggers but now we have social media and yeah. you know so, well, so now you have influencers you know, right so across influencer. multiple platforms but again with the influencers and i'm friends with a lot of them and they're doing great work but it's a pendulum swing now i can't tell you where we are in the pendulum swing but here's what i can tell you first of all it really grosses me out when people are like oh i'll cover you for free food i hate that stuff that really like oogs me out but at some point they want to make money off of what they're doing like it's if, if they're influencers in the food space, at some point they want to be paid. That always feels like a missing link to me, though. I feel, I feel like a lot of times influencers get in the game and they know they want to influence, but they don't know how they want to earn a living There's off no of it. monetizing of yeah, it. So if yeah. you don't, there will be some who monetize it. There will be some who have figured it out. And I saw the same thing with the bloggers. Like, yeah. there were people looking at me and they're like, well, she's monetized what she's doing. I was like, yeah, but I also am expanding, right? Like, I don't just 
I didn't ever had a blog, but I don't just have a website. I also do print. I also did radio. I also do TV. Now I do social. Now I consult. Like I am constantly expanding, so I am able to make a living yeah. off of my passion. But I think you'll see the same thing with the influencers. At some point, if they cannot monetize what they do, there's, there's no glory in it after a while. How much free food can you possibly eat? No, that's right. I mean, do you have advice for people that are getting into the industry and struggling to monetize the following that they built? I think for people who, if you, I was, I am a passionate person for the industry. I love the industry and I wanted to be somebody who could amplify the message that was going out. And at the time, nobody was doing what I was doing. So I, I found a space for myself. Now there's lots of people who do what I do and that's great, the more the merrier. But I think if you're looking to get into this, I think you need to stop looking at what others are doing and figure out what you can add. Yeah. Like what's not, what, what is it that you want to know that you can't find out on your own? And that's really how to start. And the other piece of advice I give, you know, a lot of people have these great ideas, like really terrific ideas, but they don't do their homework. They don't know that there's 70 other people already doing it. Yeah. They're just, listen, there's a lot of information out there. It's hard to keep track of all of it. So don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. I mean, you can certainly stand on the shoulders of people who come before you, but do your homework and reach out to those people. Yeah. I made a lot of phone calls and shook a lot of hands before I launched the list, areyouonit.com, because I... I really didn't know what I was doing, and I wanted to make sure that what I did fit the bill properly. Yeah. Um, so that's really my advice. Pick up the phone and call people. Yeah. Press, yeah. Yeah, press hands, pound network. The, press hand, pound the pavement. I, yeah. I feel like that is always the answer. Uh, right. <laughs> you, you, know? Uh, you know, exactly, put in the reps is almost always the answer. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not, not the advice that people frequently want to hear, but... Uh, no, I think people really want to hear, oh my God, that's such a great idea. I love what you're doing, and uh, you know, how can I help you? Yeah. Which I'm happy to help. When I told people what I was doing, not the people in the industry, but when I told people what I was doing, like friends, or actually this one guy who was a writer at Washingtonian who I purely serendipitously just had met, I was like, I want to know if the chef here leaves and goes across the street, I want to know that. I want to know where he's going. Yeah. Like, I want to know who's in the kitchen. And he was like, I don't think people want to know that. And I was like, but I'm telling you, I want to know it. Yeah. You know? And so I took his naysaying and I was like, yeah, but I want it. Well, no. And I think that's cool too, because you, you represent a, a demographic, you know, tens of thousands strong that also wanted to know. And mm -hmm. I think having faith in your voice as representative of a larger audience is kind of the secret sauce for the sake of so. yeah, ultimately, ultimately building a brand. Uh, so uh, you are now swirling, and uh, we've yet to talk about uh, Mirto. So Mirto is a traditional Sardinian digestif. It is infused with myrtle berries, and you spoke about myrtle berries growing on all, all over the island. Did you try this while you were in Sardinia? You know, I'm going to have to look. I don't think we did, but I can't imagine somebody didn't pour it for us somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's really, it's like a port. Yeah, so um, myrtle berries are really interesting. They're, um, they're, they're very berry forward, you know, in a, in a fruits of the forest, 
you know, black and, and red raspberry kind of way, but mm -hmm. they equally have this eucalyptus, sage, mint, wild herbaceousness. Yeah. And there's this great Sardinian word, they say macchia, which is just a reference to the local underbrush, the smell of the local underbrush. Mm -hmm. There's a equivalent word in French called garrigue. Uh, I always like it when different languages have words for things that right. I think deserve words, but you know, I was like, the Germans are good at that, like schadenfreude, you know, it's right, one exactly. a great example. But in this case, I, I've never been to Sardinia, but the thing I love about Mirto is that for me, it encapsulates all the things I think about Sardinia, mm -hmm. you know, so I want to chill with some grizzled gray bearded shepherd in some mountaintop town you know, at an odd hour and drink Mirta. That just feels, right. that just feels right. <laughs> and it feels like it, it evokes some of that. And this one comes from a producer called Argiolus. They're actually located in the same village uh, as the winery that you featured uh, for our sake, Nikki. Mm -hmm. And they started their uh, commercial life in 1938, uh, Antonio Argiolus. And he lived uh, until 102. Uh, he passed away in, in 2009, which wow. is... Very distinctly uh, Sardinia is one of like five blue zones or something like that. There are these pockets of the world uh, where people, people live really exactly, long. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Crete is one. I think like um, uh, uh, Japan, uh, Okinawa is one. It Inevitably, there's to do with the weather. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> these are all these are all preposterously beautiful places. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it it, it it speaks to that, and it it's feels really interesting. Yeah, and yeah. rich. It is, it is very rich. But uh, you're right about the menthol yeah. and the sage. I love that on the back of it. It's really nice. Yeah. Uh, we had a former uh, employee, um, that uh, Andrew Rutledge, that was just like a Mirto devotee. And huh. when we opened, uh, I had to bring some, some in for him uh, at Reveler's Hour. And it's really fun to use in cocktails, too. It's, it's a loud voice in a cocktail. I bet. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not one. But is it fortified? Uh, it, it, it starts as spirit in the first place. So okay. typically the production process would be starting with like a high proof alcohol. Okay. You could use grain alcohol, you could use grappa, whatever. And then you just soak your myrtle berries in it. Oh, And that's, that's the drink. And then you filter it and you, you would typically like sweeten it to make it drinkable. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it was, if it wasn't, then it wouldn't be. And you would dilute it sufficiently to make it drinkable. But the drink is just typically like alcohol and and myrtleberries wow yeah and it's 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 usually dynamic and really interesting and it's a big part of italian drinking culture this idea of sipping on something at the end of the meal and and it speaks again to this culture that we spoke to earlier of of just you know uh food outside of time and mm -hmm. wanting to live on a, a separate plane and enjoy each other's company and not hurry through right yeah through life enjoy the view yeah exactly exactly and and uh, mirto is kind of a quintessentially uh sardinian product uh for for that end of the meal um i'm gonna read a little bit a bit of verse uh, to that end nikki and then yes. i have a, a a couple questions to close things out for sure. you um so this is from one of sardine's most famous um, modern writers poets uh, Grazia Deleta, who won a Nobel Prize, actually, in the, in the 20s. She was the second woman uh, to win the Nobel Prize in literature, and this is called We Are Sardinians. Mm. We are Spaniards, Africans, Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Romans, Arabs, Pisani, Byzantines, Piemontesi. We are the golden yellow broom that showers onto rocky trails like huge lamps ablaze. 
We are the wild solitude, the immense and profound silence, the brilliance of the sky, the white flower of the cistus. We are the uninterrupted rain of the mastic tree, of the waves that stream over ancient granite, of the dog rose, of the wind, of the immensity of the sea. We are a land of long silences, of horizons vast and pure, of plants glum, of mountains burnt by the sun and vengeance. We are sardinias. Wow. That's fabulous. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good bit of verse. It's actually, it was hard to find uh, English language translations of Sardinian poetry. There's a Sardinian dialect, which a lot of the most famous uh, Sardinian poets write in, which is not widely transla translated. And then there's a long tradition of Sardinian sung poetry, kind of mm -hmm. like performance poetry. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that isn't, you know, um, uh, written uh, just because it's, it's more about performance than it is about, you know, a, a codified kind of written, written tradition. But um, yeah, really, a really interesting and, and remarkable literary scene. I said before we started that I wanted, you know, one of the, the most exciting things for me about your life, uh, you know, online, in the radio booth, in the restaurant, Washington restaurant world is that you have stumbled upon it at this moment where there has been this, you know, amazing kind of transitional uh, uh, change for the sake of the generational change, uh, epical change for the sake of the industry. and and, and Restaurant, you know, fads go through so many different, mm -hmm. um, you know, iterations, such a short period of, of time. I have kind of two questions for you as a follow-up to that. You know, first, what have you been most excited to see change in uh, the, the local restaurant industry? Well, I think it's more so than just the local restaurant industry is that it's the growth of the city, right? The last 30 years has seen an insane amount of money invested into the city. So there are, is real estate now that was never available before. I mean, for so long, the city just had this small little area where there were restaurants. And now there are restaurants everywhere. I mean, there are whole areas that have materialized out of nowhere. Navy Yard, the wharf. Navy Yard, the wharf. Even LaDroit and Bloomingdale to a certain extent. I mean, these were neighborhoods that Ivy City that did not normally have restaurants that people from other areas would go to. So I think the investment in the city, the growth in the city is very, very exciting. My hope is when it comes to real estate, especially as it relates to the hospitality industry because everybody wants a restaurant in their real estate, is that there is a better, um, a better dialogue about actual costs and how it works. Because you know, if the rents are sky high and ridiculous, then all you're gonna get are these touristy restaurants coming to town. I mean, no, you know, Taffer's Tavern and, and uh, Gordon Ramsay is opening up. And I mean, that all serves its purpose for a little bit, I guess. But you know, what I have found in the last 20 years is that when out-of-towners come to DC to open up, if they don't make a real, effort to be a part of this community, they don't last. And I can tell you, I can name so many of them who have come to town because they hear the stories. So are you, are you already calling, uh, you know, calling it quits for Gordon Ramsay's, um, no, uh, I'm, I'm waiting. His fish, and, his fish and chip joint is doomed I, to failure. So I think where he is, his fish and chip joint, I mean, the wharf is going to be, the wharf, locals will go to the wharf, but it's a tourist area. You're, 
It is. <laughs> so you, you just you just want to name that as the shameless cash grab that it is. It is, and <laughs> but I love it. Listen, people come to town. They're like, where should I go? It's like, let's go to the wharf. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's gorgeous. It's walkable. Plus, the end goal of the wharf. At the walkability is going to be insane. It will connect to Buzzard's Point, which will then go around. Yeah, the wolf in the Navy Yard will Navy ultimately Yard. be like one And then eventually you'll be able to take it all the way to the harbor. Yeah. So the entire coast of the Potomac and then the Anacostia River, we will all be able to walk it. We will all benefit from that investment. And there will be great restaurants that we will go to and there'll be mediocre restaurants well, I mean, I, that we won't. I think the hope is that we can all benefit from it for the sake of having different options at different price points that people right. can enjoy. And, and I always wonder about the people going, who, go, who comes to see DC goes to the wharf and says, oh fuck, cool, Gordon Ramsay's here. I want, oh, I want to do that. I, I want to do that here. Are you serious? So a lot of people do that. That's so not how you and I think. I see. I mean, nothing against Gordon Ramsay, but I see Gordon Ramsay and I think, what the fuck would I go to that? Yeah, why, why is Gordon Ramsay here? But yeah. let me tell you something. I know people who come to town and they're like, oh, I hear there's a Nobu here. Oh, her. And I'm like, uh-huh. I mean, so they there's go a with, Nobu. There's a Nobu everywhere. Right. They go with what they know. Yeah. So that's not people that we relate to because when we go... As we said earlier, we want to be a part of the fiber of it. We go to a city, we go to a town, we want to experience it. Some people want to go with what they know. It's why there's, um, you know, they opened up a Momofuku here, which did not last. It's why. But uh, David, David, like, is a local guy and did try. He was to... a local guy. I know, I know. He's, he's not, not a local he's guy. A New, now. He's a New Yorker now. And listen, yeah, yeah, yeah. he did try. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I thought the food was great, and I yeah. thought he made a real effort. But he was also at the city center, yeah. and I have to mention the rounds were completely out of uh, control. I don't, I don't know what that's like for him. I, I'm sure that they cut him a pretty sweet deal for the sake of like his initial like build out and all that okay. other stuff. But that's just a, uh, I mean, my restaurants are in a residential neighborhood because that's what we always wanted, and right. and you know, being in the heart of a city that's less residential is just a different side of the business, and and that's been harder in D.C. because a lot of those office places have yet to come back yet. Well, I agree. Yeah. But, you know, I think the wharf is what it is, and I love it. I do. I love it. But, you know, I, I, but I think if rents are kept at that high, high point, it's going to be harder for people like you to open up oh, yeah. terrific I restaurants. Couldn't, I couldn't open a restaurant in the wharf. Um, right. I mean, I couldn't have started out six years ago and opened a restaurant there. I, I do get, I get uh, kind of scared that the only options in 10 years' time are going to be you know, these shoot for the stars, kind of tasting menu enclaves, and then fast casual. And everything in between will be, you know, just un, you know, unprofitable. Well, it is a concern, especially, I think it's a concern, and I, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but it is a concern when people think that food is a luxury yeah. that is either super expensive or... Or cheap. Cheap. Yeah. So... I don't feel that way. I believe that people should have good experience with food, and it should be for everyone. I mean, an expensive dinner is an expensive dinner. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. You know, a fine dining experience, tasting menus. But I mean, luxuries that. luxuries should be luxurious. If you're if right. you're doing that every night, it kind of loses its it's, allure. <laughs> it's novelty. Yeah. Of course, yeah. it does. Yeah. I mean, I agree. You can't do those things every night, but those restaurants also need to be able to survive. They need you know people I mean? to do it every night. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always kind of wonder for all the restaurants that are doing tasting menus and are doing these elevated experiences right now. Does DC have the money to support them. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, I, I'm less worried about that than 
places that, you know, just deliver a solid experience that's a la carte and fun and that everyone's invested in for the sake of a first-time chef that's trying to prove well, I'm themselves. There for yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, that's just, that I think is a harder place to be. Mm. Um, uh, final question here. So yes. uh, we've talked about all these trends, all these things that have changed. Um, what do you still get excited about? What is the continuity? You know, you walk into a restaurant um, and they're serving X or Y, they're doing, you know, something in a particular way. What, you know, kind of turns you on, gets you excited uh, from, you know, your first post in 2003, your first show in 2006 through to the current day? Well, I think what gets me excited now is, you know, sort of the changes that are happening. You know, design is really kicking it up a notch in the DC market, which I love. So, you know, you, you eat with your eyes first, you know, you see it and that's very exciting. Um, and to me, it's also about the mechanics of it all. You know, walking into a restaurant, being greeted a certain way, you know, getting seated down in a certain way, knowing that the night is going to go well. Do you know what I mean? Like, you feel that vibe in the air. Yeah. You know when you walk in. For me, I can tell within like the first 30 seconds. Yeah. You feel that vibe. And you know, if that person at the front desk doesn't make eye contact with you, you know, because they're busy or whatever, but like, that's their job. To me, their job is to be like, I see you, I, one minute, I need one minute because I'm doing 18 things, but I see you. And once I have that moment, I know the night is going to be great. Yeah. So um, I, it is, I am not jaded yeah. about that experience yet. I'm jaded about other things. Yeah, yeah. Because it's hard not to. Um, you know, like food trends, stuff like that. Like after a while, you're like, how many of this can I have? You know, yeah, yeah. whether it's the uh, espresso martini. How many, yeah, how many different spice. names can we come up with for the same thing? Exactly. Or, yeah. So some of those things are like, you know, some people are rerunning trends from like 10 years, like, I'm not going to call them out, but somebody did a, a, some programming that was great, uh, but somebody else did it 10 years ago. And somebody said to me, they're like, I mean, wasn't that brilliant? <laughs> I was like, yeah, 10 years ago, it was yeah. very brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think the increasing in programming at restaurants is exciting too. More pop-ups, more guest chefs, more guest winemakers. I love that yeah. shit. Yeah, 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 I'm totally here for it. No, that's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Nikki. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, you have so many different platforms. Mm -hmm. If people are, you know, kind of wanting to, um, you know, understand and appreciate uh, what you bring to the local dining scene, where should they start? So always go to the list, areyouonit.com. It's the online e-zine. We tell you about everything happening in the D.C. metro area. But also you can follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I don't know how long on Twitter because I don't know what's happening on Twitter, but that's where I am right For the time now. being on Twitter. Yes. 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 Um, uh, brilliant. Uh, thank you all for listening. As ever, uh, both of the bottles we're drinking today will be available at Washington's premier wine and pasta bar, Reveler's Hour, uh, directly across Columbia Road from our Line Hotel studios. Uh, as ever, uh, thank you so much for listening. Stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of The Universe in a Glass. <laughs>